Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. In today's online, fast-paced world, where virtually every recipe can be conjured up simply by typing into a Google search, do cookbooks really matter? After hearing this week's show, I think you'll join me in a great, resounding yes. Cookbooks teach us techniques, introduce us to new ingredients and cultures that may seem foreign. They expand our palates and remind us of old-fashioned ways of doing things that seem to bring long-lost loved ones back into our kitchens. On this week's show, you'll meet Mason Hereford of Turkey and the Wolf and Molly's Rise and Shine. This relative newcomer has caused quite a stir here in New Orleans, serving formerly mundane items like a fried bologna sandwich that proved so transformative, Bon Appetit magazine named Turkey and the Wolf America's Best New Restaurant back in 2017. Mason always seems to create a sensation. Most recently, when his first cookbook ended up at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. He'll tell us the whole story, and then we'll hear from fifth-generation chicken keeper Lisa Steele, whose blog, Fresh Eggs Daily, inspired her new book of the same name. Lisa shares cooking tips along with insights on caring for your own brood of happy hens, and you'll want to hear all about her new PBS TV series, too. We're cracking the books, and some fresh eggs, too on this week's Louisiana Eats. In 2016, Virginia native Mason Hereford opened Turkey and the Wolf in a small cinder block building in New Orleans' Irish Channel neighborhood. The quirky sandwich spot, whose menu and sensibility evoke nostalgia for the early 90s, quickly became a darling of the local culinary scene. In a matter of months, it became a nationwide sensation. Turkey and the Wolf was just a year old when Bon Appetit magazine named it the best new restaurant in America. Over the next few years, it received nods from Food & Wine magazine and the James Beard Foundation. During this time, Mason became somewhat of a food celebrity, profiled in many publications interested in his larger-than-life interpretations of down-home dishes. So when Mason announced that his first cookbook was coming out in February 2022, it's no surprise that the book became one of the most anticipated culinary titles of the year. What is surprising, as Mason explained to us, is what happened to the book as it was being shipped stateside. They were all put into a shipping container cargo ship. Some foul weather 
pushed some containers over, over and 80 of the shipping containers went into the ocean. No one was harmed during the January 7th container collapse, which was said to have been caused by a large swell and winds at 22 knots. As for the cookbooks, they're now lost somewhere on the bottom of the Atlantic. Mason announced the news on Instagram by posting memes that showed his book, Lost at Sea. We tried to have fun with it. Uh, We got a lot of, I'm so sorry, that's such terrible news. Uh, That was not our reaction because in uh, 2022, as it is now, after two years of nonstop wild news, a lot of which was truly negative, the fact that no one got hurt on this and it's sort of a hilarious turn of events, we just took it in stride. The whole tale was too funny for reporters to ignore. Washington Post, New York Times, NPR talked about it. My mom heard it in the car. It was written in uh, an Italian journal in India, in Mexico. We've gotten more press about this cookbook than we probably ever would have had it not fallen into the ocean. A new print run was completed. And thanks to fair winds and calm seas, Mason's new book finally hit shelves this summer. Turkey and the Wolf, Flavor Trippin' in New Orleans contains over 95 nostalgic and indulgent recipes that feature his irreverent take on Southern food. Mason got his start in fine dining, like many members of his kitchen crew. But as he writes in his introduction today, they take a more direct route to deliciousness. So yeah, I guess the the story, the line in the, line in the book, it's, it's saying... So much of of my style of cooking was trying to, you know, reproduce where we ended up at Turkey and the Wolf, uh, like through this fine dining lens. And now what we've done is we just cook that food. So a good way to follow the evolution of how I cook is the first Thanksgiving, I made a, a stuffing with like 200 ingredients and finely brunoise vegetables and nice mushrooms and all this stuff. And now I make stuffing with Jimmy Dean sausage and, you know, just chunks of bread and chicken wing meat and very little other thing, a couple a couple herbs and spices. It took me an extremely long time to understand that you can pull back on the number of ingredients. And then the next step in that process was, well, there's some things that the grocery store is already, already making perfectly. And, you know, part of what we do in this cookbook is we're trying to ditch unnecessary steps in cooking. And, you know, instead of perfectly roasting your sunflower seeds at 200 degrees, you know, the gas station across from Coquette sells roasted sunflower seeds in a little bag for 99 cents. Uh, Sometimes it's easier just to buy that product, you know. I never understood personally when restaurants, high-end, fancy-schmancy spots started making their own Worcestershire sauce. Oh, I I used to do that. Um, Yeah. The the one that drives me crazy is ketchup. There's nothing better than Heinz ketchup. And if you make, you don't see it as much as you used to, but I feel like there was definitely a time where like house made ketchup was popping up and it ain't for me. Um, And I love homemade breakfast sausage, but you're not going to tell me there's one better than Jimmy Dean, you know? It seems like some of your taste buds may have been informed by your mom's encouragement to eat at the convenience store at the the, yeah. the, the local neighbor we're, we're not talking like the chains 
Right. There were some unusual convenience stores where y'all even had credit, huh? Yeah, that's a fact. So, as it says in the book, every morning, uh, well, we would miss the bus hilariously often. Um, and then my mom would, you know, pack us all in her old, rusty, beat-up, brown and tan Suburban. And we would drive across town to school, but we lived right by a country store called Moppin' Bros Country Store, which sadly has, is no longer there. But uh, she would, you know, park in the in the parking lot and let us loose in the aisles, and I'd grab, you know, maybe a can of Vienna sausage or a frozen burrito. And, uh, yeah, I like to think those things are what inform uh, my departure from fine dining into casual food is, uh, you know, that sort of, for lack of a better, better term, like junk food flavors. <laughs> well, it's pretty amazing what you've been able to do with that palate of yours. Very now, refined palate. Very refined palate, Mason. I, I know you can tell the difference between a cool ranch Dorito and perhaps a competitor. So I, well, I if know I may, <laughs> there is a recipe in the book that uses Doritos crushed up as a topping. And we actually count out the number of Doritos so that you have the exact ratio of cool ranch and nacho cheese, which I will say is a bit of a gimmick, but the recipe is just not the same if you don't do it that way. I don't know what they're going to do if they ever stop making those flavors. I know. Uh, yeah. is, is this a book for the ages then? Uh, <laughs> you know, I think it's if, – if Doritos is going somewhere uh, anytime soon, I guess it's very much rooted in time and place. Uh, that recipe does rely on Doritos' existence. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think the, rec the recipes will stand the test of time. I certainly hope so. Well, one of the hallmarks of your food is um, I think a lot of it could be classified as what is trendily referred to as comfort food. And yeah, it is. I mean, we try to make it comforting. We we end up there a lot, but we just start with flavors and ideas. So a lot of our food starts as an idea or a combination of flavors. And we don't know if it's going to go in the direction of heavy or light or whatever until the end. But Turkey and the Wolf is sort of like a heavy, comforting dish restaurant. And Molly's isn't far off from that either, which is never in the cookbook uh, as well, which is never our intention. It just sometimes you end up with, you know, trying to find the most when, when you find the thing that tastes the best to you. Sometimes it's because it's the most comforting. Well, I'm just so tickled with um, everything that you're all about. Was it a big surprise when... 10-speed press came calling. How did this book thing happen? Yeah, I I mean, when occasionally after we got like the, the big press thing, people would say, so you're going to write a book? You know, like, I guess, I don't know, being in a magazine makes people think that you get to write a book. I'm not sure. But I always said, I don't think we're qualified to make a cookbook. And as the years went on, um, my older brother, who's a very talented photographer, was shooting more cookbooks and doing more food photography in addition to his travel and fashion photography. And J.J. Good, the co-writer, had moved to New Orleans a year prior, and him and I had become friends. So it was the perfect storm of a pitch for Will and J.J. to say, you're writing a book, buddy. And I was like, okay, let's do it. Because J.J. convinced me that how easy it was. Uh... Not easy at all, as you know. But if if I can't imagine it being more seamless, any less seamless. I don't know what I'm trying to say. JJ made it seamless. 
uh, I guess JJ introduced me to an agent and they shopped the idea around. JJ and I made a, a small 15 page proposal and everyone kept saying, you better get 10 speed, 10 speeds cool or whatever. And I'm like, I don't know anything about cookbooks. We'll see what happens. And then they, they came in at the same offer as everybody else. And I was very excited because, uh, everyone told me that's like what you're supposed to have. So. Well, I didn't know that your brother, Will, was already a renowned photographer. Yeah. Because my only— I could sing his praises for a while. He's got a a long resume. Well, I was really blown away by the photography. Thank you. We had so so much fun. It is so fresh and different. Man, Will did you a good turn. Tell me about shooting the book. Yeah, shooting the book was an absolute blast. Um, We went into it with the the notion that this book's not going to look like any other book. We want it to be more playful, uh, a little less sort of obvious food shots, uh, unusual props, uh, things like that. And yeah, what Will was able to create with just himself, no assistant, just his own tools, uh, was some pretty astounding photography in my opinion. Now, Mason, this is a cookbook for 2022. And I'm not really sure if your proper grandmother might be ready for the abundance of expletives in the book. Did is there? Edit- is it that bad? I don't know. I can't. Mm. When I read when I read the expletives, I don't. I, I'm I'm unaffected, and I've really turned toned down the the use of expletives in my social media messaging over the years. Um, so I imagine it could have been worse, but it's just, sometimes it's a really good way to emphasize what you're getting at. I felt like I could hear your voice throughout (laughs) the book because, um, nothing was left out. Shall we say, did the editors ever say like tone it down, dude, or did you just get the green light? Uh, I think we just got the green light. There wasn't that many. And I, and I think it the youthful vigor of the curse words was hopefully uh, getting them excited as much as the, they were saying, you know, thinking that perhaps it wasn't for every audience. But I think it's pretty tame, personally. Congratulations. Thanks. I'm so happy for your success. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for being a New Orleanian. We're thrilled to have you. Oh, it's an honor. That's a major honor. That was Mason Hereford, author of Turkey and the Wolf, Flavor Trippin' in New Orleans, which finally hit shelves this summer. Coming up next, we meet fifth-generation chicken keeper Lisa Steele. Her new cookbook offers eccentric recipes for every meal. Louisiana Eats returns after the break.
Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now inviting you to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew with their new box subscription program. Shipped quarterly to your door with up to 10 surprise ingredients inside, it's like having a Mardi Gras parade through your kitchen all year long. To learn how to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. How do you like your eggs? If you're like most Americans, you prefer eating eggs over any other dish to start your day. But what about using eggs in every meal of the day? Or to help you make the perfect cocktail? In her new collection, The Fresh Eggs Daily Cookbook, Lisa Steele offers recipes and pointers to help expand readers' egg repertoire beyond breakfast. Lisa has been offering poultry-keeping advice for over a decade through her books and popular blog. She pursues her passion for cooking and baking in the rural Maine farmhouse she shares with her husband, all the while raising a mixed flock of about 30 hens. As a fifth-generation chicken keeper, chickens really seem to run in Lisa's blood. They really do. Um, Obviously, you know, I raise chickens now. I had chickens as a kid. I was in 4-H. You know, we had the little backyard flock. But my grandparents were actually chicken farmers. Two-story chicken barn. You know, they sold the meat and the eggs to other restaurants. They had a diner that they supplied. Um, So, you know, when my parents got married, they, of course, built them a barn and filled it with chickens. And my parents were like, no, we're not we're not chicken farmers, we're teachers. Um, But we, you know, I did have the little backyard flock as a kid. But then before that, my great grandmother, who actually lived around the corner from my grandparents, I was thinking about it the other day. And she was kind of like one of the first true homesteaders, because she raised chickens and geese and goats. But unlike my grandparents, she didn't sell, you know, any of what she was raising, but she used it to feed her family. And she, you know, she was always recycling and reusing and all that kind of stuff. So she was kind of like a a true homesteader. And then she came over from Finland uh, when my grandmother was a little girl. So my great grandmother was probably in her twenties or something um, with her husband and daughter. And they had raised chickens and geese in Finland. So that's as far back as we can verify for sure but I'm positive it goes back like to the beginning of time you didn't set out to be a chicken farmer or a farmer at all you too had a very different idea about which way your life was gonna go I did. I was not a huge fan of the chicken growing up. You know, as a kid, it was just chores. It was clean the coop, collect the eggs, 
you know, bring the scraps to the chickens. And we loved the baby chicks, but once they weren't chicks anymore and they were outside, I really had no interest in them. Um, so I was from a small rural town. I knew that there was a big world out there. So I decided to go to college in Rhode Island. I got a degree in accounting, moved to Long Island, worked in Manhattan on Wall Street. And it was great. I mean, it was just, it was exciting. It was the 80s. It was, you know, it was the place to be. But uh, I burnt out really fast. It definitely was not where I belonged. So long story short, I ended up um, quitting I owned a bookstore for a couple of years and I met my husband who was in the Navy stationed in Florida of all places. So that was it for the bookstore. I ended up selling it. And then he got stationed in Virginia. We moved to Virginia. We ended up on a little farm and I started raising chickens and like everything just clicked. How did Fresh Eggs Daily come to be? How did you come to realize that you had an audience who was who needed you and your advice. <laughs> that actually happened in Virginia. That was 2009. We had a little kind of hobby horse farm type thing with some horses. It was great. Uh, I wanted more animals and I wanted goats. Everybody was making soap and cheese and all that kind of stuff. My husband didn't really think goats would be that fun. So he sort of counteroffered with chickens. I was thinking, I don't really love chickens, but I'm not going to say no, right? <laughs> so we went and got our baby chicks at the feed store and I started sharing on social media. Facebook had sort of just become a thing and people started asking questions. And I realized that because I had grown up with them, I knew sort of how to raise chicken. <laughs> Plus I had done a lot of reading and research. It had been a long time. So I started answering questions, posting pictures, and it just kind of grew from there. I was fortunate to get in on Facebook early on when it was growing really fast. And Fresh Eggs Daily just blew up once you started blogging. Yes. I started the blog, I believe, in 2011, maybe. More just as an archive, blogging wasn't even really that popular back then. But I kept answering the same questions on Facebook. And I said, you know, if I just write an article on this website that I can create, I can just take the link and share it. And I don't have to keep typing the same thing over and over again. So it really just started out as an archive, I figured, 20 questions, you know, the most common things I'm asked, I'll write a couple articles, use it like that. So 10 years, 700 articles later. <laughs> and you wrote some books about chicken keeping, right? I did. 2013, I guess, I decided that maybe it would be fun to write a book. So I put together a proposal and um, ended up getting a book deal. And my first book really was just kind of a chronicle of everything I was doing, everything I was writing about on my blog. It's a super easy, quick read beginner book. And honestly, even now, almost 10 years later, probably 90% is still the way I do things. More recently, Lisa began hosting a country lifestyle television show called Welcome to My Farm, which aired throughout Maine. Next month, the show will begin airing nationwide on American public television. Given her chicken credentials, I asked Lisa to share some of her egg expertise with us. So why are fresh eggs so important? I think they really are. I, I don't know that until someone has had a farm fresh egg, you know, that's only hours old instead of 
weeks and weeks and weeks old. <laughs> they won't really realize. But, you know, when you're frying or poaching, you really want your egg to hold together. And as an egg ages, it thins out. The whites thin out, the yolks kind of flatten, the membranes get really thin and weak. So your egg is going to spread and it's not going to be as nice if you poach it or fry it. Scrambled eggs are going to be drier. Eggs lose moisture as they age. So I think it's super important to use the freshest eggs that you can. And you don't have to have chickens. I mean, you can go to a farmer's market, a neighbor, you know, there's other places to get eggs. You don't have to have chickens. Well, what about egg safety? How, how does salmonella come into the picture? I have to confess, you completely changed my view on salmonella in your book. Well, the truth of it is, is that most chicken flocks do have salmonella. I mean, chickens can carry salmonella without it affecting them. They can pass it down to their chicks and through their eggs and everything. I believe it's one in 20,000 eggs. It's estimated has salmonella in it, you know, so it's not super rare, but it's not also super common. But another reason why fresh eggs are important is because as the egg gets older, air and bacteria can get in through the pores in the eggshell. And also the bacteria has time to grow and multiply inside the egg. So the older your egg is, the more chance that there is bacteria and there's a, a larger load of bacteria. Obviously, if you're elderly or young or immune system compromised, you should cook your egg completely. And that means fully set whites, fully cooked yolks. But for the rest of us, I mean, I make mayonnaise, I make tiramisu, you know, I put egg white foam on top of cocktail. I'm not super worried about it. And the whole scheme of things in this world, salmonella is really not even on my radar. Well, one of the things that fascinated me, I suspect that a lot of folks who are buying farmer's market eggs just might get those eggs home and wash them because sometimes from the farmer's market, they look a little grungy, but that's really a bad idea, huh? It is a bad idea. And I mean, it's also sort of a bad idea to buy dirty eggs. I post a lot of pictures of my eggs and my chickens and all that, as you know. Um, you know, and I actually just posted a picture of some eggs the other day. And a couple people commented and said, you're not supposed to wash your eggs until just before you use them. And I said, the, they weren't washed. Like, I just brought them from the coop. I picked them out of the nest and put them on the counter. You know, they're they're clean. If, I keep, if you keep your coop clean and your chickens are healthy, they should be fairly clean. But, yes, you shouldn't wash fresh eggs until just before you use them. They have a natural coating called the bloom that covers the egg. It's like the last thing that the hen does before she lays the egg. And that coating sort of seals up the pores and that keeps air out, bacteria out, helps the moisture from escaping from the egg. So it's super important not to wash those eggs. Supermarket eggs have been washed already. It's a crazy law we have in this country. So those have to be refrigerated, but fresh eggs, farmer's market eggs, neighbor's eggs, you can leave them on the counter. They don't even need to be refrigerated. Well, a room temperature egg is going to perform better in a recipe just about every time, right? Exactly. Yes. Ingredient temperatures definitely matter. If you're making something and you're adding cold egg or cold milk to a recipe, it's going to cause the fats to seize up. You know, especially in baking, a lot of times you will see room temperature milk, room temperature eggs. It really does matter. So it's really nice to have a bowl of eggs always at room temperature because I always forget to take them out and let them. A little warm up. Would you demystify that whole white <laughs> versus colored egg thing? 
Yeah, it's funny because growing up, we did eat our eggs at my grandparents' eggs. They were always brown. There was actually a jingle on the radio or TV that went, Brown eggs are local eggs and local eggs are fresh. Uh, brown eggs are local eggs and local eggs are fresh. So that's what they were pushing is that the brown eggs were the local eggs. The eggshell color has nothing to do with anything other than the breed of chicken. So the egg freshness isn't determined by the eggshell color. What the egg tastes like is going to depend on what the chicken's eating and how fresh the egg is. The eggshell color has, has really no bearing on anything. But the perception used to be that the better eggs, the supermarket eggs, were the white eggs. Most white egg-laying breeds are smaller. They're sleeker. They don't eat as much food. So it's more economical to produce a dozen white eggs than brown eggs. The brown egg layers tend to be little plumper girls. They eat more food. <laughs> so that was what was in supermarkets. But brown eggs, white eggs, it all depends on when the egg was laid and what the chicken's eating. At your house, I suspect you're serving eggs three meals a day. Give me some of your family's favorite ways to eat eggs. That, that is actually true. You know, since we do get so many eggs in the spring and summer, a lot of times we will have breakfast for dinner, something just simple as fried eggs, toast and bacon. You know, that that's always a great dinner option, especially in the summer when you want something quick. But Eggs Benedict is is my go-to favorite breakfast. You know, if I could just eat eggs one way for the rest of my life, it would be Eggs Benedict with homemade hollandaise. Once you master that and the timing of it all, it's not difficult at all and so, so delicious. And it's always great to have hard-boiled eggs or deviled eggs in the fridge for a quick lunch in the summer. Those are those are two go-tos also when we have tons of eggs. Well, congratulations on all your success. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and my Louisiana Eats audience today. I know that folks who know you will be thrilled and folks who've never met you will want to get to know you, Lisa. So thank you. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. And yes, I do hope so. I mean, I... I did write the book in large part for my chicken keeping audience, but obviously everybody eats eggs and eggs are so easy to source. So I hope everybody will check out the Fresh Eggs Daily Cookbook. That was chicken keeper Lisa Steele, author of the new cookbook, Fresh Eggs Daily. Considering all the cookbook authors we gathered together for today's show, are you curious about what the current state of cookbook publishing and sales are in the U.S.? Stay tuned, and we'll explore that topic when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, 
breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. This week's culinary quiz question brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the current state of cookbook publishing and sales in the U.S.? The good news is the demise of the printed cookbook did not result from the dawn of ebooks. Ebooks have not worked for users as well as traditional print cookbooks always have. In fact, E-versions of titles only represent about 5% of sales. After all, why would you have that expensive electronic device near all that cooking? Imagine what a splash of hot olive oil could do for your screen. Almost 5,000 new cookbooks are published in America every year. Sales of those books have been on the increase, with annual gains of at least 10%. In fact, cookbooks are one of the only genres in the publishing world continuing to grow. What's selling best? Regional and ethnic books are leading the pack. Sales of keto diet cookbooks are said to have increased 228% over the last couple of years. No matter what kind of cookbook you prefer, there's much to be said about winding down at the end of the day with a much-loved and trusted cookbook. I hope you'll give it a try one day soon. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. My name is David B. Hazelwood, and I'm the author of Cooking Southern, Recipes and Their History. Writing a cookbook can be a real labor of love, something David Hazelwood knows all too well. Together with his friend and collaborator, David Smith, Hazelwood spent five years researching and writing a book that explores the history and evolution of Southern cuisine through its dishes and traditions. At almost 600 pages thick, Cooking Southern compiles over 1,800 historic recipes going back generations. Individual sections are so thoroughly detailed that they could easily stand as books by themselves. Frankly, just about any section could be a book when you've got 1,800. You could d divide that by 10 and you've still got a book of 180 recipes. But that was part of the joy of of my co-author David and I pulling this together is to 
have no limits really on on what we were going to include when we started we didn't just didn't set any limits we just kept going and uh, this has got to be included this has got and and for different reasons so how did the two davids come to write this ambitious new tome as hazelwood explained cooking southern was made possible through the author's 50-year friendship one that almost always involved food. David's family owned a, a iconic restaurant lunch place in Nashville called Satsuma. And for over 20 years, I ate lunch there every day. And uh, people say, doesn't it get boring eating the same place every day? Well, it might, except the menu changed every day, and it also changed seasonally. So when you uh, do anything every day, anywhere with anybody, relationships developed. I make friends everywhere I go, but uh, uh, David was the uh, maitre d', if you will, at the restaurant, seated everyone, and uh, he and I became friends. And won't go into the long story, but he actually introduced uh, my wife and I, uh, set up a blind date for us, and... Uh, We've, we've stayed fast friends all these years. Well, the two Davids, y'all make up quite a team. So how did the cookbook writing begin? Their restaurant had been open for about 90 years. Their family founded it. And um, things just got boxed up. And it was uh, David's aunt who had been one of the founders. And uh, one day, David uh, was going through some of those boxes and found a bunch of old cookbooks. He got to looking through them, became intrigued with them. And about that same time, I found a box of old books at my house, and it was a box of books uh, that belonged to my grandparents. And in there was a, a little memorandum book where my grandmother, Miss Lizzie, had handwritten with pencil uh, over 50 of her recipes. And I knew I had a treasure because, you know, not many of us have any recipes from uh, our grandparents. Exactly. And, and so this cookbook, Cooking Southern, got started by the opening of two boxes of old books. <laughs> Tell me about your grandmother and your relationship to her and these recipes. I was fortunate enough as a small boy to go and stay with her a, a week at a time, uh, kind of in the early elementary age, and uh, very impressionable. So uh, I got to be with her in the kitchen. She was a, a widow at that time and uh, watch her cook things, and uh, she would cook some things for me, um, and uh, in some cases uh, let me be involved. The first thing I learned to cook was her cinnamon toast that was made in a skillet. In a skillet? And she didn't have a toaster. Oh, uh, how wonderful. So uh, she, she buttered a slice of bread, sprinkled cinnamon sugar on it, and then flipped it over and uh, and fried it almost. In, in, right into that cast iron skillet, right I imagine. Right cast iron skillet. I would say that of those recipes that were in that uh, memorandum book, there were probably a, a third of them that I had actually remembered eating. 
And then we, we expanded the cookbook. There's probably over 150 recipes. So I wrote all of my aunts and uncles and cousins and said, if you've got any of grandmother's recipes, send them to me and we'll include them in the cookbook. And um, if you don't have one of her recipes, then just send a recipe that is of something you remember eating in her kitchen. And uh, we, we got about another hundred recipes that way. I truly could not come up with a recipe that would be regarded as Southern that you hadn't included in this book. <laughs> I imagine that since the book's publication, and I would suspect probably with Miss Lizzie's heirlooms too, you've heard from readers who you assisted in discovering their own family heirlooms. Do you have some tales like that? I do, and uh, and really most of, of them come at, at the heart of what I've been promoting, and that is for them to sit down with their grandchildren especially, sit down with your grandchildren and give them a copy of, of your recipes, not, not just any old recipe that you clipped out of the newspaper, but the recipe that you use for chest pie and that you've tweaked over the years and that you've served them many times. And they, they love the taste of it. And sit down with them, give them the handwritten recipe. Don't type it up for them. Just go on and write it out because that'll make it more valuable. Just, here it is in, in my grandmother's own handwriting. And then tell them the stories that go with that because I would say at, at least a third of the recipes in, in Cooking Southern, they've got a story that goes with it. And the story becomes almost as valuable as the recipe because it, it prepares the setting for uh, the foods that people were, were cooking and eating. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite ones uh, came from a cousin um, Kathleen in, in Michigan, and she recounts her and two of her other cousins at Christmas time. The table was loaded down with food, and Miss Lizzie's jam cake sitting on the corner, and her recipe for caramel icing isn't a soft icing. It actually uh, is hard, almost candy-like. And uh, they would go by there and kind of peck at it and little by little pick off pieces of icing until they got caught and got in trouble with it. And, but we can, all, we can all resonate with that as, as we read it because, oh, yeah, we, we remember that hard icing that kind of fell off in little pieces and picking them up and eating it with your hand. And so the, the story is, is as rich as, as having Miss Lizzie's caramel icing recipe. Well... I think we're birds of a feather in our obsessive need to try to preserve these important heirlooms that um, if we don't eat them, how are we going to save them? Isn't that the truth? That's right. As a matter of fact, David had commented when when uh, he first thought about this process, he says, you know, if, if I don't do anything but preserve these recipes for my children, I will have uh, fulfilled myself in, in the project. And it, it wasn't long until uh, I said to him, David, I said, this is a whole lot 
bigger project than than our three daughters, and uh, and sure enough, that's been the response. Is everybody's so grateful? I get phone calls from folks says, "Oh, I just found a recipe for you know whatever, and I hadn't seen one of those in a long time, and I'm so glad to have it." Says I'm going to cook it tonight. You know, I get everybody's taking pictures of what they're eating today and with their phones, and uh, I get pictures re- regularly of, uh, oh, I just cooked this, here's a picture of it. And uh, that's a that's a new wave of gratification that uh, cookbook authors uh, get that they, they couldn't have, uh, have years ago. It really impressed me that in your foreword, you actually touch on this southern landscape and the changing nature of it. Um, what do you have to say about the food of the South today from where we're sitting now? One of the things that we have noticed is that, um, and it's been going on a good while, is that uh, Southern cooking has become trendy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not trendy for the South, but trendy for all over the country. Uh, there was a time when I'd get on an airplane, I'd tell people I was from Tennessee, and they would say something like, oh, yeah, Jack Daniels or Elvis Presley. And and now they're making comments like, oh, yeah, Nashville's hot chicken. <laughs> and so not not only is, is Southern, uh, Southern cooking taking on a, a, a bigger role, but Southern cooking itself is is getting influenced as uh, chefs around the country uh, grab hold of it and and you know make it their own, and they're they're taking some of our staples, some of our basic recipes, and then they're they're updating it and and bringing it to life, and that that's so exciting. Um, we, we say somewhere there in the book that uh, we can't wait to see what the next phase of Southern cooking is going to be because it, it for sure is invo- evolving uh, rapidly right right under our noses here. Well, David, thank you so much for coming to visit with us and for your beautiful book, Cooking Southern. It's really something to be reckoned with. Thank you, Poppy. It's been my pleasure to, to visit with you and to be able to share these stories. David Hazelwood, author of Cooking Southern, Recipes and Their History. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. I've got big news about our upcoming monthly Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Brunch, held on the last Sunday of every month at Tujac's Restaurant. This family-friendly event includes three courses, four drag queens, and of course, bottomless mimosas. On Sunday, August 28th, 
we've invited our friends, Bo Cialino and Matt Armado, to bring their housewarming magic to our drag brunch. They'll be signing books and mixing and mingling, sharing all those at probably this tricks you've learned from them on Instagram. Don't miss the fun. Reservations may be had online and by calling 504-525-8676. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have more than 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily, for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, producer Blake Longlinay, the newest member of our team Kate Gotro, and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.